listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Hi there, my name is Darren Roundson, and I was asked to send you a quick video letting you know who I am and give you context. So my name is Darren, I am married to my wonderful wife, Alex, and her and I have two boys, uh, our seven-year-old Ezra and our three-year-old Amos. And we moved to downtown Long Beach, California, uh, 12 years ago to start a church that's called The Garden. And we have led Garden Church now for the last uh, 12 years together. And we love our city, and we love our community, and we love being a part of what God is doing around the world. And I'm a huge fan of you guys, Red Church, um, I have been friends with Mark for a few years now, and uh, I'm a huge fan of Mark and, and your team. Um, Mark has been a generous and kind friend to me over the years, and I am so grateful for him, but I'm also very honored to be able to preach to you. I wish it were in person, but for now, I hope that my heart and this message will come across uh, via the interwebs. So I look forward to meeting you in person someday, but for now, uh, this is what you get. When was the last time you had a major life transition or a major event take place? I want you to think about it. Was it getting married? Was it changing careers? Maybe it was when you became a father or mother. Or maybe it was moving. You moved from one city to another. How did you prepare for that event or that transition? How did you prepare for that new thing? that came into your life, whether it was exciting or scary. You see, I believe right now God is about something. He is up to something new and you can feel it. There's so much going on in the world. There's so much happening in this moment and we know that God is up to something. And the question I want to ask today is how do we prepare for God's new thing? Last weekend, I was helping a friend move into a new house, and he moved from one house to another house. He's got five in his family, three kids and his wife, uh, and he went from one house in Long Beach to another house in Lakewood, both in Southern California. Uh, His old house was filled with memories and furniture and clothes and dishes and games and all sorts of stuff that you pack into a life of, of nine years with family in one home. Um, and this move was this major transition for this family. He and his kids and, the, and his wife sorted and sold and packed and prepped their entire lives to move everything over the course of one weekend. And it took two days with a handful of families who quarantined together to make this transition happen. Um, we moved their house in one weekend. And it wasn't just one weekend though, it was prepped way beforehand. There were weeks and weeks and weeks of planning and strategy of of packing and getting rid of things and moving so they could move and transition into a new home. And this, this weekend, this, as I was thinking about all the experiences that we had in the process of moving this family into their new home, I was reminded of something I often forget, that oftentimes the greatest things in life require the most sacrifice. I remember when my wife was pregnant with our first son, Ezra. I remember reading all the books you could read 
preparing our home, reorganizing our lives, preparing to have a new child, coming into this world, reading about the roles of parents and fathers and uh, my wife reading about all sorts of things with newborns and us asking friends what their experience was life. And we prepared, but the, the preparation we, we uh, the, all the preparation that we had was nothing compared to what was happening underneath the surface. Yes, I built the crib. Yes, I baby-proofed the home. Yes, I cleaned out the rooms and made space for this new little boy. But the preparation that was happening in my wife, Alex, was different. It was her body began to literally make space for a child to grow in her womb. Her, she produced more blood. Her organs shifted. This five foot three tiny little woman was about to carry life in her. And, uh, and for most of that time, it was under the surface. You couldn't tell that she was pregnant. But then by eight months or so, and by nine months, everyone in the world was like, you're pregnant. And she's like, yeah, obviously. Have you ever seen... You know, you know what I'm talking about. And so we prepped our home, we prepped our minds, we prepped our life for what was coming next. But Alex created space within her for something to be born, for new life. And that was far more of a sacrifice than anything I could have ever given. Because the greatest things often come after the greatest sacrifice. And they come with preparation. Throughout history, when God was about to do something new, he almost always prepared a people for what was about to come. One of my friends, you might know him, a guy named Mark Sayers wrote this book called Reappearing Church. And he says this, as we study how God brings renewal throughout history, we begin to see the pattern that crisis plays in renewal. A community may experience a natural disaster or, or war and may be pushed back and may be pushed back into God. An individual may experience a period of wilderness and isolation, crying out to God, who then comes to them in their pain. This person gains spiritual depth, being renewed, becoming an influencer for God. Crisis and transitions that they bring are one of the critical ways that God uses to move us. Crisis precedes renewal. And oftentimes, the greater the crisis, the, the greater the potential for renewal. We are living in a crisis. We're living in a global pandemic in a moment where things seem to be divided and there's debate. But I believe God is about to do something. So how do we prepare for God's new thing? If you have a Bible, go to Joshua chapter three. This is familiar to many of you. Joshua is in the Old Testament. It's right after the Torah. And Joshua is gonna give us some insight on how we today might prepare for what God wants to do in the future. Joshua is a book in the Old Testament that tells the story of the people of God finally inhabiting the promised land, a land that was sworn to their ancestors nearly 500 years before this decisive event in Joshua chapter three. So I wanna read this story and share some observations that I have and then we'll pray and close up, okay? So Joshua three, verse one, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the, uh, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, 
and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. So the story is this moment where the people of God are about to go into the promised land and begin to fight their way uh, towards this thing God is going to give them as possession. This was something they were preparing for. 40 years before this event, the Israelites were wandering in the, uh, in the wilderness led by Moses. The book of Joshua begins with Moses' death. God calls Joshua, uh, and they're now entering into this moment where they're going to enter, inhabit the future. They're going to inhabit the new thing. They're going to enter into this land that was promised way back with Abraham. This is that moment. But I want to just make some observations because I think it's really fascinating as we talk about how do we prepare. The Israelites set out from Shittim um, and went to the Jordan and camped there before crossing. Now, the walk from Shittim to Jordan is only a couple of miles. Now, why would God have the Israelites pack up camp, leave their location, walk a couple of miles, only to set up camp again for a few more days? Why not just stay where they were at and then cross over? I think this small detail has some significant implications. Um, and I was thinking about it because I, I was researching this and wondering what, how far is this journey and why Why would you do that? Especially if anyone, and the reason I ask this question is because I've taken my children camping without their mom. A couple of months ago, I took my two boys alone, camping with another friend, another dad and, their, and, her, and his daughters, camping in the woods without our moms, without our wives. And we decided to do that because, well, man, camping is awesome. <laughs> it is. It's great. But I spent so many hours preparing for the experience of camping in the woods with my children to make camping as comfortable as possible. I planned and prepped and, and loaded up the truck with all sorts of gear. And then when we got there, I set up all of the gear so that we could sleep outside. And, and, and what is camping? It's sleeping outside, but there is an entire multi-million, if not a billion dollar industry dedicated to making camping outside as comfortable as possible. And I think that's something that I was thinking about. They, they pack up from Shittim because they have to be reminded of who they are. You see, oftentimes when we live our everyday ordinary life, even uh, wherever it is, we settle into the comforts that we create around us. We settle into the comforts. But when God is about to do a new thing, when he's about to fulfill a promise, he disrupts their comforts in order to reestablish their convictions. They, they pack up camp, walk a few miles only to set up camp again to anticipate the new thing God's going to do. He shakes them up. He disrupts their comforts. And, and in that process, reminds them that this is who they are. They are forged by an identity given to them as they follow the word of God and follow his presence. That yes, it's easy in our ordinary life to get set up into the comfort and the comfortable 
and the secure. So when we are to prepare ourselves for what's coming next, if we are going to prepare for the new thing of God, we must first disrupt our comforts and reestablish our convictions. Comfortable living almost always leads to compromise. Compromise, you could say, is simply a lukewarm lifestyle in Christianity that doesn't compute with following Jesus. We move, excuse me, from comfortable living to reestablishing our convictions. And when we reestablish our convictions and who God is and who we are, we remember why we're here. And we begin to uh, reassess our values and our habits and our practices. And it creates space for God to do something new. Sometimes it's easier to settle into an identity that our work gives us, that our careers give us, that our significant others give us, that our dreams give us. We, we settle into finances, finances as our place of meaning and significance and purpose and value. And when we get comfortable with those things, those idols, God first shakes us up. He moves things around. He, he wants us to put some things away, to get off that social media, to, to, to get uncomfortable to remember who we are, who he is, and why we're here. Are you with me, church? Now, I like to hear this um, when I'm preaching in, in presently with you. And I don't know if you're comfortable with this, but if you're in your own homes, can you just say amen out loud? Are you with me, church? <laughs> All right. Let's keep going. So the first thing we can do is we disrupt our comforts to reestablish our convictions. Then the story goes on. Joshua chapter three. I love this verse. It says this. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. How do we prepare for God's new thing. Well, the second thing we do is we repent from compromise and pursue consecration. Church, I think this is such a word for the moment that in many ways, the comfortable lifestyles we live, that we, we create out of habit unintentionally, when we reestablish our convictions, we begin to awaken. We begin to see all the little micro compromises we've made along the way. And God wants us to, wants us to, uh, to, to repent, to turn away from those little things, to, to uh, come back home, to change our minds and change directions, to pursue God's lifestyle, God's way of life for us. In the word, consecrate. It means to make something holy, to set something apart for holy use. And God, from the beginning, called his people to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests set apart for the purpose of representing God on earth to the rest of the nations. And what we see is time and time again is holiness is being, is God calling his people to be useful for his purposes. We say this a lot, that holiness is about usefulness. And consecration is simply the process of making something holy. And in the Old Testament, what we see is that there are seasons where people are called to consecrate themselves. In Exodus 19, God is about to descend on the mount, mountain on Mount Sinai and bring the law. And before he visits the people, he says to his people, consecrate yourselves. And that consecration for them 
meant that they had to prepare their homes, they had to prepare their relationships, and they had to prepare their lives and literally clean their clothes, wash their clothes. Remember, they were living in the desert camping, so that was a process. But as they consecrate themselves, the very next thing is God's God's power and glory and presence dwells in a mighty way. And what you see throughout Scripture is that the fruit of consecration is visitation. When the people of God consecrate themselves, the Lord shows up in powerful ways. That was in Mount Sinai. It happens here in Joshua chapter 3. It will happen when Solomon consecrates the temple, dedicates the temple, and makes it holy, and, and God's God's presence comes and his glory falls. And they were given all these instructions as priests on what to do uh, in the temple. And they can't even do their tasks because God's glory and presence is so thick among them. We see over and over again in seasons, consecration brings about greater visitation. Um, From his book, Simon Ponzibi, he has a book called The Pursuit of the Holy. And he, he writes this, he says, Canadian spiritual writer, Henry Blackaby has said that God's people can shape a nation if they are holy. He offered these challenging words that uh, should cause all leaders like me to truly search themselves. I believe there will be no revival in society without holiness in leadership. None. Cry unto God all you want, he will not hear you. Pull together all the phrases that revivalists of other generations have all quoted, and it will not make an ounce of difference to the heart of God. God is looking for holiness. Yes, Lord. We say, yes, Lord. He's looking for holiness. How do we prepare? By repenting from compromise and pursuing consecration, pursuing holiness. Pursuing the one who is holy. What what do I mean by holiness? I'm not talking about a specific stoic legalism. I'm not talking about becoming legalistic in things and dogmatic about certain things. But I actually believe in this moment around the church in the West and beyond, the church has accommodated itself to culture. We've allowed culture to reflect within the church a kind of lukewarm spirituality that is really hiding under this desire to be relevant and cool. Instead of passionate zeal and fire for God in our words, in our action, in our thoughts, in our lifestyle, we simply are the spitting image of culture right back into the word world. We look like the world. We act like the world. We talk like the world. We are, are, are living lives just like everyone else. There's nothing different between how we relate to each other, how we handle conflict, how we consume media and information, and how we spend our resources. We simply look like the rest of the world. Holiness is simply uh, standing in the sea of moral decay on, on dry gl- ground. Excuse me. Let, me. let me pull this in. I'm clearly passionate about this. Amen. In a world that is drowning in moral decay, holiness is simply standing with one foot on dry ground while you're pulling people to the shore in freedom. A.W. Tozer said, every man is as holy as he really wants to be. Oh, every man is as holy as he really wants to be. I have found that um, when speaking on holiness, I love uh, the Nazarite vow found in the Old Testament in Numbers. It's a very helpful uh, uh, kind of framework for this vow that was taken in the Old Testament by, by people who were pursuing God with this spiritual zeal and 
God gave people in the Old Testament as Nazarites to to embody covenantal faithfulness as a symbol of what's possible. But in the vow, uh, there's this line about not touching a corpse. And I don't know about you, but I don't, I've, I've never really, I've touched a dead body before. Um, but that question like uh, started emerging in my life when I, when, I, when I took on the Nazarite vow for different seasons. Um, the question was reframed around this idea um, is there anything in my life that I touch, that I think, that I consume or pay attention to that brings me spiritual death? What do you touch that brings spiritual death in your life? Holiness might be for you observing the things around you and recognizing ways that you enter into seasons of laziness or sloth or or overconsumption. For example, like you might not struggle with drinking too much alcohol. That might not be an issue for you, but your Instagram feed might lead you to unnecessary consuming. Maybe the Lord is inviting you to a season of purity in those things and simplicity. You might not struggle with lust, but maybe reading celebrity gossip magazines and posts online might lead you to gossip about people. You might not struggle with inappropriate anger, but you might hide the way that you escape your ordinary life by binge watching Netflix or Amazon Prime. Well, I believe in the holiness movements of the past in regards to their call for moderation and sexual purity. I actually believe that our current generation needs to think uh, deeply about the things that we are doing in our life in this digital age and pursue God in a new way. How do we prepare for God's new thing? Repent from compromise and pursue consecrations. The rest of the story is what happens. And I want to share this because it's so beautiful. Um, in Joshua chapter three, verse six, it says, Joshua said to the priest, take up the ark of the covenant, which symbolized God's presence and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, listen to this. Today, I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the, the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. God's presence goes into the water before you. Now then, choose 12 men from among the tribe of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the presence of God, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan. Its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in full flood, uh, is in flood all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carry the Ark reached the Jordan and their foot, feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground 
while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completely completed the crossing on dry ground. Oh, how do we prepare for God's new thing? This may seem obvious, but it's right here. And perhaps it's not so obvious, but we as the people of God, we obey God's word and follow his presence. We don't simply follow a program. We don't follow personalities. We, we, we obey his word and we follow his presence as the people of God. And I love this miracle because I love what God does. It's similar to the miracle in the Red Sea. And you, you know the differences in the story, so I don't need to remind you. But for the sake of me, humor me, okay? This story required a new kind of faith for the people of God. Notice that the people of God um, knew what happened 40 years prior. They understood the miracle that took place when their, their parents and grandparents and their relatives crossed the Red Sea. Moses held his hand out and his staff and boom, right there, the Red Sea parts. But in this one, it's different. This one required a different kind of faith, a kind of faith that, that required its leaders to get wet, the kind of faith where it's not going to happen with a hand. It's not going to happen with simply a word. It's going to happen because you step into the cold waters during flood season and you wait patiently in that obscurity until the waters from the uh, uh, upstream stop flowing downstream and then you go on dry land. Could you imagine those people, if I was hearing this, I'd be like, hey, hold on. Hey, Moses did, Moses did it this way. But see, what was faith for them in that moment was different. Faith yesterday is not faith today. Your faith that you had yesterday does not necessarily mean you have that same faith today because today needs new kind of risk. You need to step out. Remember, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Faith today requires something else. It requires an active stepping into a trust, a getting your feet wet kind of leadership so that the people of God will see what God is about to do. You see, God is, is forming his people to obey his word. Joshua hears what God says to him. And then he simply turns and shares with the people following him what he heard God say. And then the people, out of obedience to the authority that's in front of them and also being shaped by the word in the presence, choose to follow them, follow their leaders into this obscure Miracle because God said, consecrate yourselves tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things among you. And surely he does. He parts, he stops, he, he creates space so that they can walk across the Jordan and enter into their future and their promised land. Enter into the inheritance, inhabit the future together as the people of God. But how do we prepare for those moments? How do we get there? We first start with obeying his word and being shaped and formed by his presence. See, what I love about Joshua is Joshua didn't just start hearing God's voice 
in that moment. Joshua didn't just start hearing God's voice in this moment where God's about to show up. He had been shaped and formed by the word for a lifetime. Joshua chapter one, when God calls Joshua to lead after Moses, God says to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep the book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Joshua's leadership was marked by an obedience and a formation to the word of God. He was shaped by the word of God. And Joshua was also a leader who was formed by the presence of God. This was not the first rodeo in if you know that expression. Joshua was shaped by the, the presence of God. One of my favorite stories is in Exodus chapter 30, 33, where there's this, this moment where you, you hear about what happens when Moses meets with God. It says in verse seven, now Moses used to take a tent to pitch, let me get this right, uh, to pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring on the Lord would go to the tent meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance of the tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. The pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood, worshiped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Come on, this is so amazing. God speaks to Moses. There, the people are outside as the pillar comes, the presence of God is there. But there's this tiny little verse that we just kind of read over. And it's this verse. Then Moses would return to camp. But his young assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Did you catch that? Moses' personal assistant, his helper, the one that organized his calendar and sent back emails and got his food orders for meetings and set up the chairs and tore it down, he didn't leave the tent of meeting. Moses goes and meets face-to-face with God, and then he goes back to the camp, but Joshua stayed in the presence of God. You see, God is looking for leaders. He's looking for a people who will stay in the presence of God, who will allow the word to be formed and soaked, and they they will reconstruct their lives around obedience to God's word in the moment, to listen to his word and do it, but then they go into the presence, and they stay with God in his presence. You guys, the, the future church needs to be led by people who are both word and spirit who are operating from a different way, who are taking God's presence into the waters with them, leading the way as consecrated leaders. This is what God is about. As he's about to do something new and amazing, he's searching for leaders. He's searching for people, for disciples who will prepare themselves for the decisive moment. So when it comes, they just pick up, they pack up camp and they head to the waters because they know something is about to happen. We need a church who will live in response to God's word and follow his presence wherever he invites us, wherever he's leading. We need a church that embodies the word of God and the spirit who follows the presence of God and has fresh faith to do the things he asks of us. 
how do we prepare for what's coming? How do we prepare for what God is about to do? I believe God is looking to prepare a people who are willing to put in the work to sacrifice because the greatest things in life come from great sacrifice. Whatever faith you had yesterday, that's not faith for today. And faith today will not be the faith that you need for tomorrow. We need people who are willing to step into the waters and risk. We need people who will evaluate themselves, take inventory, to to disrupt their comforts, to pursue God and reestablish their convictions to, to those of us that are willing to repent from our compromises in order to pursue consecration. People who will obey God's word and follow his presence into the unknown. I believe God is going to pour out his spirit in fresh ways on his people as you prepare your lives for what's coming. So what do you need today? Where are you as you prepare for what's coming? Are you shaking up the comfortable living? Maybe you're evaluating the areas of your life right now that you realize are compromised, that God is speaking specific things to you to say, this is not for you in this time. There have been seasons in my life where I've given up good things that are not bad in themselves, social media, alcohol, Netflix, TV. Seasons where I've chosen out of listening to God to give these things up in order to pursue something else. And every time I do it out of obedience, every time I do it out of this place of hunger, not necessarily... Uh, There have been times where I do it out of trying to discipline myself into some greatness, trying to discipline myself into purity. That doesn't work. But when God invites me into it and gives me the power and the grace to sustain me in this new thing, every single time there is abundance on the other side. Brothers and sisters, God is about to do something. I want to invite you to prepare. So Father, would you release my, my, my friends to steward what's coming? to reorder their lives around your word and your spirit, to wake up to the calling on the church in this moment, to lead the way. Release us, God. Prepare us and allow us to receive more, God. Would you pour out your spirit in mighty ways as we follow you into the unknown? And we pray this in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.